to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. I'm a little excited um, to get started here. We are beginning this morning to in a study of the most famous of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, that is recorded to us in the chapters of God, Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I uh, have no idea how long it's going to take us to get through it, but uh, we're going to tackle it like we do most other uh, works of Scripture. We're going to take it verse by verse, and uh, we're going to look at what the Lord has to teach us. And I think it's especially significant when we look at, at the words um, that Jesus speaks to us in what I said is really one of these most famous of sermons. There's a uh, parallel account in Luke's Gospel um, sometimes referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, many scholars believe that these are really two accounts of the same event. And you think, well, how can it be the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain and be the same event? Well, most likely Jesus kind of was about halfway up the mountainside on a level area with, where he could address his disciples and the crowds that were following him. And so they could very well be the same event. Of course, it is possible that they're that Jesus taught on the same theme at different times. Certainly possible these themes that Jesus speaks on are essential to the Christian life, to following God, to knowing Him and serving Him, and are extremely important. So if Jesus taught on it more than once, certainly possible. But all in all, to, to recognize as we look at this, that what we have recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel is not Jesus's sermon in its entirety. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, Matthew is writing this years after Jesus preached it. So how many of you can remember and write record the sermon that I preached two weeks ago? All right. So, right. Okay. So now granted, I'm not Jesus. All right. My words are not as powerful or impactful as the words that Christ spoke. Yet, um, but what the Gospels give to us, though, are really the core of the message, the, the heart of the message that Jesus gave in order that we might know and understand those things which are most essential. And of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, things were brought to the writer's mind as he, as he wrote and was inspired in, in writing this and recording it for our benefit. And the interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount and where it begins, it begins with what is known as the Beatitudes. These blessings that Christ speaks over His people um, in, in all truth. And I thought, what more appropriate message for a Mother's Day service than to speak of God's blessing on His people? Because what do moms want for their children more than anything? God's blessing, Right? Moms want their kids to know Christ. Moms want their children to follow Christ. Moms want their children to have Christ's blessing in their life. And that is what this passage is really about. As Jesus gives an introduction to a much larger sermon on the Christian life. He speaks about what it means to know God and to follow God and to experience God. And so, and many of the things that Jesus says in this sermon, as you're going to see, are challenging even to the most devout followers. 
There are things that stand so starkly in contrast to the way the world around us thinks and the way that we're trained to think by the world around us. That when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we are meant to be challenged. And there are many things in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning that will challenge us. Now, as we, as we, before we begin, I just want to remind you again of the context in which Matthew is speaking to us. Jesus has recently begun his earthly ministry. He has been baptized by John the Baptist. He has been tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He has gone out and begun to proclaim repentance and repentance for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And he has called at least some of the disciples, which is recorded for us in the previous chapters. But I would say that he's probably at this point, they've all probably been with him, following him and listening to him. And those which are the closest to him are present in this sermon. I would like to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read from Matthew's Gospel, beginning in chapter 5 and verse number 1. I want to read through the entirety of the Beatitudes this morning and just to maintain the context. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain. And after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the Word of God. Father, we come before you and thank you for the beginning of this instruction. We thank you, Lord, for the challenges that it presents to us. And we ask, Lord, for your understanding in them, that we might learn from them and grow in them, to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, to be strengthened in our faith, be obedient to your word. I ask, Lord, that you fill me with your spirit for the preaching of your word. And I ask, Lord, for your spirit to open the hearts and minds of those who are listening, that they might receive this word and be transformed by it, so that you might be manifest in us and Christ might be exalted through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Be seated. 
I've been studying through the Beatitudes for the last several weeks, I've discovered that there's kind of a, a, a breakdown, really, of the Beatitudes into three major sections. The first section, comprising the first three Beatitudes, has to do with this idea of, of faith and the essence of faith as it is experienced in a right evaluation of self. That is, these first three Beatitudes have to do with self-evaluation. The second three Beatitudes have to do with a proper motivation for serving Christ. And the last three have to do with a right understanding of the world around us and our responsibility towards it. Now, we're only going to be focusing on that first group this morning, and really, the more I studied this, the more I realized I wasn't even going to get through all three of those. So we're going to be focusing just on the first beatitude this morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we come to this text and we come to this teaching, it is something that is very different from what we'd expect. It was very different for the people that Jesus was preaching to from what they would expect. For, for Jesus to begin a sermon with this word blessed and then to connect that to this idea of being poor in spirit. First of all, the idea of being poor was just not something associated with blessing. Um, many people in Jesus' time, as it is in our time, didn't understand that or, or rather, their thought was that material wealth and material blessing was a sign of God's favor on them. Yet, this is not where Jesus begins. He does not affirm that sense, but rather he redirects them in giving them this instruction and this, this understanding of blessing as it relates to those who seek the kingdom, to those who are following Christ. It's interesting because even before, and I need to back up in the text here for just a moment, because as Jesus is coming to, to teach and to preach, we see that it's in verse 1, that it says that when Jesus saw the crowds, right? He saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, it says his disciples came to him. So you have to ask yourself, who is he teaching? Is he teaching just the closest of his disciples, or is he teaching the crowds? Well, the answer is both. He's teaching his disciples, those that were closest to him. They were coming to him. They were gathered around probably closest to him. But his positioning on the side of the mountain, the level place on the side of the mountain, would have given him the opportunity and the ability to speak and so that his voice would carry beyond the disciples which were immediately around him and would would carry out to the crowds who had been following him. So Jesus' intention here is not just instruction to those who were closest to him, but to all who would hear. And so Jesus positions himself in order to address the disciples, but also so that the masses might hear and understand these truths which he is speaking about the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus was ultimately concerned with people having a right understanding of God's kingdom. Because for so many people, and, and it's true as it was true in his day, it's true in our day, so many people have a wrong understanding of the kingdom of heaven. 
They form their idea of the kingdom of heaven based on their own desires. They form their ideas, ideas of the kingdom of heaven based on their own wants and their own preferences and their, and their own, in recognizing their own weaknesses and trying to kind of manipulate circumstances and understanding and, and even interpretation of scripture to fit what they want rather than what Jesus taught. And so Jesus teaches here to correct a wrong understanding of what it means to be in the kingdom. And so he's, he goes and he's, and he's speaking to his disciples and he's speaking to the crowds in a manner that would shake their very understanding of life and of God. A teaching that continues to challenge throughout the ages as Jesus pits the natural understanding of mankind against the spiritual principles of his kingdom. And we are called in this first beatitude as he, verse 2 says, he opened his mouth and began to teach them. As he begins to teach, we are called to a place of awe as Jesus, the very Son of God, begins to speak. And listen, he speaks with authority. He, he, he is God in the flesh. When Jesus speaks, he speaks and tells us things that we have not known. He's revealing mysteries from of old. He's revealing to us truths which we cannot know apart from him revealing them to us. And so Jesus speaks and we're meant to be in awe. And then he begins and he tells us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in every one of the Beatitudes, there's, there's three parts to the Beatitude. First of all, there's the declaration of blessing. Blessed are whoever, right? There's the declaration of blessing. Common to every, every Beatitude. It's how he begins each statement. Blessed are. It's an, it's an adjective. It just describes the, the person who fits the condition which he speaks of. So then he, just, he tells us of the condition of the blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. That's the, the two parts, right? First part, declaration of blessing, then the condition of the blessing, and then the description of the blessing. What does he say? What is the particular blessing? He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is the blessing that he's talking about. Blessed are. The word blessed, sometimes in some newer translations, it's, it's uh, translated as happy or fortunate. That is an unfortunate translation of the word blessed. The word blessed means to have God's divine favor resting on you. When you see the word blessed, you ought to think of God's favor resting on you. This is what Jesus is saying. God's favor rests on those who are poor in spirit. And what is that favor? That to those who are poor in spirit belongs the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to break that down and look at what, what all of that means this morning as we, as we continue to, to look at this, at this passage and to seek to understand it. But to have God's favor rest on you. Does that sound, sound good to anybody this morning? If that sounds good to you, just, just wave at me. I mean, who doesn't want God's favor resting on them? I mean, so when Jesus says, 
blessed are, he's saying God's favor rests on, you know he's had some people's attention. But the next thing out of his mouth kind of shocked him because it was contrary to the culture in which he lived. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That word poor, it means, it comes from a root word in the Greek which means to crouch down and to cower, like in the position of a beggar. That's, you know, you see people begging on the street and they don't, they're not, tip, I mean, sometimes you see the people, you know, even the people that are standing, what are they doing? They're kind of, kind of hunched over, right? Looking pitiful. That's what the, the poor people of Jesus' time and even today, a lot of times you walk down the streets. We went to New York City a number of years ago and uh, almost every beggar that we saw was sitting on the, on the sidewalk and they, and they would have something out for a collection and, and stuff. But that's the, uh, this word poor, it comes from that word to crouch or to cower, to be beggarly, to be destitute, to, to not have anything. And, excuse me. And so that's the idea of being poor that comes out of here. And that, and that comes as a shock to us because just in Jesus' day, you know, we tend to think, you know, blessed are the wealthy, right? Because we all want what? We all want wealth, right? I mean, we look and, and you know, we want that new car, that new house, that new boat, that new, you know, that new whatever. And, and uh, we like to have things and we like to go places and we like to do stuff. And, and we just think that, that wealth is just what we ought to be pursuing and what we ought to have. And, and if we have it, then, then that's God's blessing towards us. And, and well, certainly, everything belongs to the Lord. Amen? And, and, he, and he distributes his wealth as he sees fit, right? So certainly, wealth is a blessing from God. But that does not mean that everyone who has wealth has God's favor resting on them. Because many people attain their wealth by ungodly means. Many people who have wealth don't use it in a godly manner. But instead they use it for their own purposes and their own designs. Now to be fair, Jesus isn't speaking specifically about material wealth because he does say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? That is, he's talking about those who have recognized their spiritual poverty, spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. Yet we also recognize that throughout the pages of Scripture that we're told how difficult it is for the rich to attain to the kingdom. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Why would he say such? If, 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 if wealth is a blessing, if, if wealth is something that shows God's favor, then, then why then why would he say such a thing as that? It's because wealth tends to cloud our judgment. Wealth tends to lean us toward self-sufficiency. The wealth often feel like, they, they, they may feel like if they have God's blessing, but they don't necessarily need God's blessing or God's grace. They like the idea of heaven. They want to give a good showing to the church crowd. But their heart is not surrendered to Christ, but to money. Jesus revisits this theme later on in the sermon in uh, chapter 6 and verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. 
Consider the warning that James gives in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become mothy and your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and you will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Wealth. Oftentimes, not always, but wealth oftentimes contrasts and contradicts faith. Wealth rightly obtained, rightly honoring the Lord. I've seen, I've seen God work in wealthy people's lives for His glory, and He can do that, and, and we need to be careful in, in, in how we... God hasn't called every believer to a life of poverty, okay? That is not the teaching of Scripture. But we do need to understand what Scripture does teach, that, that wealth can be a hindrance to faith. I recently heard an account of the famous theologian uh, Thomas Aquinas back in the 13th century. And uh, Thomas was called to visit the Pope, Pope Innocent II. And when, when uh, Thomas Aquinas arrives and, and he goes in to see the Pope, and the Pope is, is in, in a room and he's... And he's just counting these large sums of money that have been brought in by the church. And the Pope turns to Thomas Aquinas and says, no longer can the church say, silver and gold have I none. And Aquinas answered the Pope and says, neither can it say, rise up and walk. You see, the church amassed wealth and affluence, but it lost its faith along the way. It lost its dependence on God. It lost its desperation to know and to serve the living God. So wealth is an obstacle to be, can be an obstacle rather, to serving Christ and to recognizing true poverty of spirit. All too often material wealth interferes with genuine faith and material goods cloud our judgment when it comes to the real needs of our soul. We fall into the trap of thinking that material blessing means that God is pleased with us, but the moment we start to think that we've done something to earn God's favor, we have destroyed the meaning of grace. We never get to the point where we earn God's favor. Now, does God bless us for obedience? Yes. Does God give good things to those that, that follow him? Yes. Does he also give hard things to those that follow him? Yes. But we don't ever deserve the blessings of God. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 tells us God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. We can never earn God's favor. It is only by grace, only by His free gift of salvation that we can be saved. Spiritual poverty recognizes the desperation of our situation. It is manifested primarily in two different ways. The first 
we've already begun to allude to, but it is that idea that we've done something, that we've made ourselves acceptable to God, and we've used the example of material wealth in which we think because we have all this stuff that God must be pleased with us, therefore I must be right with God. That is an erroneous conclusion. That is false logic. You can never reason from the present back to back or you can never reason from your circumstances back to having a right relationship with God. Our present circumstances don't indicate our relationship with God. There are some people who are being who are being tortured to have a right relationship with Christ because they're being tortured for their faith. There are other people who are living in relative ease and comfort to have a right relationship with God. Your current circumstances don't determine your relationship to God. Your relationship to God is determined by one thing and one thing only. Have you surrendered to Christ? This first beatitude speaks to us of really the beginning of faith. And faith begins with the recognition that we are spiritually bankrupt. That we have nothing that we can offer God. That we only deserve His wrath and His judgment. And that apart from His mercy and His grace... We have only in an eternity of hell to look forward to. That is the idea of being spiritually poor. To recognize that we can do nothing to earn God's acceptance of us. The only thing that we've earned, according to Scripture is a death sentence every time we sin. I don't know about you, but I lost count of my sins a long time ago. If I've earned a death sentence for every one, I only have one life to offer. I've accrued a debt I cannot pay. But Christ, The infinite Son of God came to offer Himself in place of everyone who would believe in Him because as an infinite being, He is able to substitute Himself for an infinite number of lives. But just as God, He needed to do something else because only as God, He could not simply pay for the sins of mankind he had to become a man and so he took on human flesh he came to earth in the form of a helpless baby he lived life in righteousness and in holiness and in perfection in order that he would not accrue a death sentence for himself and then in fulfilling all righteousness he offered up himself in our place because we couldn't do it We are bankrupt. We are powerless to do anything against the consequences of our sin. We can offer Him nothing, and we deserve only judgment and wrath. But because of His infinite love for us, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to stand in the gap, to take on that judgment. 
to be poor in spirit is to recognize that there's nothing we can offer to God because we have only offended Him. It's interesting to me as I was studying this past week and contemplating these truths and thinking about the world in which we live and thinking about, you know, we live in a culture that seems to demand restitution for every offense that one person commits against another for any number of reasons. It seems like if you're offended by somebody, then just automatically, by our culture's standards, you're in the right. You've been offended and someone owes you restitution. And our culture just seems to be going in that direction, that everybody who's offended deserves to, to, ha to have compensation made to them for their offenses. But in all of those thoughts of restitution and compensation, there's not one thought or one idea out there that leads us to the recognition that we've all offended God and He demands restitution that needs to be paid and can only be paid through His Son, Jesus Christ. Our world is so upside down and so backwards. We recognize offenses. We recognize the, the necessity of restitution for offenses. But we don't recognize the compensation that needs to be paid to God for the offenses against Him. But He did. And we do through the teaching of Christ who tells us to recognize that we have nothing to offer God, that we must recognize our spiritual bankruptcy in order that we might attain to His gift of salvation. A gift which belongs to those who are poor in spirit. The second way that we see that spiritual pride is manifested, spiritual pride is the opposite of being poor in spirit. Spiritual pride is that which says we have something to offer to God and that He should accept us because of something that we have or something that we've done. That is spiritual pride. But spiritual pride is also that which says that I'm better than somebody else, that looks down on those around us, that, that seems to think that we have it all together and the things that we have are ours and we ought to be able to do with them what we want and that, and that, we, need to, that we need to exercise our rights and that we need to um, insist that people um, attain to certain levels and to... to jump through certain hoops and, and do certain things in order that they might be accepted into God's family. That is spiritual pride. As we look around the world around us and we come to think either that we're not as sinful as those around us or that their sins are somehow worse than ours. Both of these issues, the, the spiritual pride that says, I have that I'm acceptable to God because of what I've done and that I'm better than others because my sin is not as bad or because I'm not as sinful as those around me. Both of those were problems amongst the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, amongst the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests. And it's evident through Scripture because you see it in the responses to Jesus' teaching all throughout His ministry. As these religious leaders respond, they don't respond in repentance and faith. For the most part, there's a few exceptions, but they typically they respond in hostility. They respond in opposition. Just as the world in which we live responds in hostility and in opposition when we bring up issues regarding the kingdom, regarding God, regarding Jesus Christ. There is 
opposition to those things which tell us that we need to be humble in spirit rather than prideful in spirit. They weren't just problems in Jesus' day. They are rampant in the churches today. When we think more about our wants and desires than we do about sharing the gospel and serving others, we are guilty of spiritual pride. When we insist on having things our way and put our desires first instead of trying to figure out how to best invest in and disciple others, we are guilty of spiritual pride. When we are selfishly motivated and are unwilling to use what the Lord has blessed us with in order to make much of Him, we are guilty of spiritual pride. And pride separates us from the love of God and from the will of God. I'm reminded of the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. Think about this for a moment. God has afflicted their oppressors with curse after curse after curse. God has given them freedom. He splits the sea so that they can walk through on dry ground. They come to the other side. Their enemies begin to pursue. God swallows up and drowns their enemies. They're in the wilderness. They're heading to the promised land. Moses goes up on the mountain to be with God, and the people rebel. The people seek to serve a molded calf, a golden image, rather than the God who saved them. That's spiritual pride. been reading in my devotional time about King Saul. King Saul's downfall was spiritual pride. Saul gifted the kingdom of Israel. And Saul goes to fight the Philistines and he sets up camp and he's waiting for the fight and Samuel's supposed to come and offer a sacrifice and seek the Lord's will and Samuel's delayed in coming, and Saul says, well, I'll just take it upon myself to offer the sacrifice. And in doing so, he violates God's commands. He violates God's commands to do the thing which he thought he needed to do, but which God said was offensive. That was spiritual pride. A little bit later, again, King Saul, he's given direction by the Lord to go and to slaughter the Amalekites. All the people all the livestock, utterly wipe them out. What does he do? He goes and he kills all the people and he takes all the livestock and their king and he brings them back to Israel. And Samuel comes to Saul and he says, why didn't you do what the Lord told you to do? And Saul says, I did. I went and I, and I killed the Amalekites and I brought back the king and, and I brought back these, these things. Or he says, and I brought back the king. And Samuel's like, if you did what you were supposed to do, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ears? He says, I told you to wipe. He says, does the Lord delight in sacrifice? Because Saul, this is Saul's excuse. Well, I brought these back to sacrifice to the Lord, right? Spiritual pride. Samuel's rebuke comes to us in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, in verses 22 to 23. Samuel says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices 
as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Spiritual pride says we know better than God. We're going to do things our way. So much spiritual pride going on in the churches. I could, I've, I've got a list here that I could go through. But I, I think you all know. You see churches compromising on the word of truth. You see people trying to redefine what sin is. You see people trying to redefine scripture to fit their desires and what they want. You see uh, people uh, preaching against the Old Testament. We need to get away from the Old Testament. Folks, listen. Apart from the Old Testament, there wouldn't be a New Testament. God's Word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is established for eternity. If we're going to experience the blessing of God, we need to come to that place of spiritual poverty where we recognize, first of all, that we have nothing to offer God to make ourselves acceptable to Him. And not only do we have nothing to offer, but we're no better than anybody else. We're all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. We're all guilty of sin. We're all deserving of judgment. Everything we have, it's not ours. It's the Lord's. And everything we have is meant to serve Him and to make much of Him. Whether personally or corporately. We are given the things that we are given by God for His glory and His glory alone. Apart from spiritual poverty, we cannot even be saved. Spiritual poverty is the beginning of faith. I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Let's look at verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only in the first and last of the Beatitudes is the verb in the present form. That is, these are current realities. All the other Beatitudes, the blessings are in a future tense. This, that's blessed are these people, for these things shall come to pass. These things, you shall be comforted. You, excuse me. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. All of those are future tense. But here, as Jesus begins with the first beatitude, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is a present reality for those who recognize their spiritual poverty before a holy God, that they have nothing to offer, that they're no better than anybody else, and their only hope is to cry out to a merciful God to cleanse them from sin and to accept them as His children. That is the blessing for spiritual poverty. And I'll tell you this, I don't believe when Jesus is telling, this, the, the Beatitudes are not a to-do list, okay? We can't look at these things and say, these are the things I need to do. No, these, these are descriptions of a reality of a heart that is surrendered to God. 
If you are surrendered to God, if you know God and want to follow God, you will experience poverty of spirit. Because in the face of a holy God, you cannot help but recognize your worthlessness. In the face of a holy God, you will experience all of these things. So Jesus is describing the reality of faith. Faith that begins with poverty of spirit. Because only through being poor in spirit do you come to the recognition that you even need to be saved. The best picture of this, I believe, comes to us in, from the teachings of Jesus in, in Luke 18, 10-14. Jesus taught on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and I'm going to close with this. Jesus says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Can you hear the spiritual pride? But the tax collector, standing some distance away is was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, have mercy, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That tax collector, he had a poverty of spirit. He recognized he had nothing to offer God, that his only hope was God to be merciful towards him. And he was. Because when God brings you to that place of poverty where you recognize that you have nothing to offer God, but you are solely dependent on him to act on your behalf, then he receives you in that moment as you call upon him in faith. And yours is the kingdom of heaven. Never to be taken away. Never to be lost. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning of faith. Now, we're not all as poor in spirit as we ought to be all the time. And whereas it is the beginning of faith, it is, not, it is not always an ongoing reality for faith because we struggle. And the Lord deals with that in the next beatitude as he speaks of mourning. And we're going to talk about that next time because sin is a real struggle in our life because pride wants to well up within us because we're tempted to be prideful. We're tempted to be selfish. We're tempted to forget our condition before a holy God. But he's there to remind us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your great grace and love with which you continue to pour out that love to us day by day and moment by moment. And Father, I pray that these words today and 
preaching on the poverty of spirit, Lord, that they would touch someone, Father, either to bring them to a place of faith for the first time or, Father, to help them to return to that reality in which they recognize their own spiritual pride before you. And, Father, that each one of us, because we're all guilty, but each of us would remember and, and reflect and repent in your presence so that you might receive glory in working through us and forgiving us and cleansing us and restoring us. Father, we love you. We thank you for the love with which you have loved us, for the consistency with which you act on our behalf, and Father, for the patience that you extend towards us, even in our sin. Lord, lead us now to respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen.